I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. You know what a Harlequin is? A Harlequin's role is to serve. It's nothing without a master. No one gives two shits who we are beyond that. The Joker and I broke up. I wanted a fresh start. But it turns out I wasn't the only Damon Gotham looking for emancipation. Spectacular news! Miss Queen, she belongs to me. Who are you guys? We've covered nearly three dozen movies based on DC Comics over the past 11 years, I counted. Superman, Superman 2, Superman 3, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, Supergirl, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Batman Under the Red Hood, Batman Year One, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, The Dark Knight Returns, The Dark Knight has a little bit of a lie down, Green Lantern, Watchmen, Superman Returns, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, Justice League, The Lego Batman Movie, Joker, Wonder Woman 1984, Justice League The Snyder Cut, Shazam, and Aquaman. And most of these are available on our School of Movies archive, a separate podcast feed which you should check out now for everything prior to 2017. You could also access our website via firesidealliance.com for a complete list of shows we've done with links to every single one. However, this is one of our very favourites. With us this time around are Hollywood actress Maya Santandrea. Hello, guys. Hello. Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Hey, I know a great taco place we could go after this. Do they do margaritas there? <laughs> and from Game Burst, it's Jerome McIntosh. A good day there. Good day. Birds of Prey was written by Catherine Hodgson, who wrote Bumblebee, and thus somehow managed to make us love a live-action Transformers film. She's currently writing The Flash, which is fantastic news. Kathy Yan, who helmed Dead Pigs, became the first Asian female director of a blockbuster set in the world of superheroes, and that Yan, for her debut 
big film was able to explode this into our faces with such chaotic joy is testament to what a magic touch she has. It was released in February 2020 and made $200 million on a $100 million budget. This is relative to 2016's Suicide Squad, which was Margot Robbie's debut as Harley Quinn, and made $746 million. So clearly... Even allowing for imminent lockdown restrictions that were creeping up in early 2020, we are looking at two very different films appealing to two very different audiences, one of them a lot smaller than the other. But since Deadpool made $782 million a few months before Suicide Squad, I think what we're looking at, if you think of it as a Venn diagram, is a small circle for folks who love Birds of Prey inside a big circle of folks who saw Suicide Squad. So my first question for the group is this. Bearing in mind that we should try hard not to dismissively throw millions of people under the bus, let's look at the tone and content here to establish the strongest contrast. So how is this written, performed, shot, and edited differently to Suicide Squad? Uh, well, it doesn't suck. Uh <laughs> That, can can you be, be more like specific that. than that? I'm not going to do this voice <laughs> sure. the whole way through. It's more Timon than Harley Quinn anyway. <laughs> uh, the, the biggest thing for me, and I've talked about this all the time, is that the action scenes are so much more fun in Birds of Prey, and or even they have a much longer takes, so you actually can see the actors and the stunt performers like doing their work instead of cutting everything up with really rapid cuts. Uh, there are several really long takes in this movie that I definitely am going to call out later on that just make it so much more engaging and visceral, like you're kind of there rather than in Suicide Squad where they hack that sucker together from pieces in a way that I'm not sure anything could have survived. I think one of the key things for me is in the writing and specifically in the characterization. Uh, Suicide Squad seems to have foregone quite an amount of characterization for a lot of characters. They threw a lot of characters that they expected you to remember at the screen. And most of the quote unquote characterization was done by uh, mugshots and, and the rap arrest sheets. records. Yeah. They're rap sheets, yeah. And uh, not, not all of them. This is Katana. She's got my back. She can cut all you in half with one sword stroke, just like mowing the lawn. I would advise not getting killed by her. Her sword traps the souls of its victims. Harley Quinn, nice to meet ya. Rick Flagg told us about Katana. Lots, yes he did, that's very <laughs> true. But with this, you you get, I mean, the, the first thing in it is the animated intro for Harley's background, how she became who she is now, her childhood, and this litany of neglect and abandonment and abuse and uh, heartbreak that resulted in the brightly coloured and determinedly bouncy young woman that we are then presented with. One of the key things that like really hits it for me is the fact that, you know, they took a bunch of street level individuals, you know, in terms of like the superhero sense, like these are street level, like they deal with their day to day like small problems mm. seem big to them, and they kept it like that. They didn't send them against an apocalypse. It's literally it's a Gotham crime uh, caper sort of thing, and they kept it within that uh, realm. So 
it, that impacts on like as victoria said like the fight scenes are grand like you get to see the full choreography of it people are using guns they die and it's not uh floating people hitting each other throughout the sky it's it's what a lot of people thought suicide squad would be is that it's not going to be grandiose it's going to be personal and focus more on individual people being brought together by mitigating circumstances yeah it has more in common with lock stock and two smoking barrels than it does with superman or batman the costume designer actually gave a damn for uh, birds of prey and actually cared a whole awful lot uh put in a lot of effort on making sure that the costumes were not only in keeping with the character's personality where they are at, a, at that given point in time they have uh, very specific color themes going throughout the movie for the individual characters and uh, that in and of itself leads to what would be my third thing that this movie has color in it mm-hmm. which is um definitely a step up from from Suicide Squad. I mean, the one of the early scenes where Harley's getting her uh, the love of her life, the breakfast sandwich, uh, it, it's shot more like... It's a Gotham that could be on the West Coast. It's mm. like a San Francisco Gotham. Yeah, it's shot as in California opposed to, as opposed to places like Chicago where the Dark Knight was shot. Yeah, so it actually has, like color and, and and light to it, something that you don't usually see in a movie with uh, with Gotham in it. And then Suicide Squad itself is such a muddy mess to cover up the terrible CGI. Yan came into DC offices and said she literally wanted to smash the patriarchy. And I'd be surprised <laughs> if they were then surprised that she had. Like, <laughs> That's my pitch. <laughs> this was definitely Margot Robbie's baby. She was uh, um, developing this in 2015, before Suicide Squad even came out, when she'd been she'd landed the role of Harley Quinn, almost certainly after she'd finished filming that, that uh, movie, and probably was somewhat dissatisfied with uh, the, the way her character arc went. Weirdly, the film that when I saw this in the cinema, I misremembered Suicide Squad. I thought that Joker had either in the theatrical cut or director's cut shoved Harley out of the back of a helicopter for betraying him to Waller. And she had fallen, not to her death, but onto the top of that building. I went back and watched Suicide Squad afterwards, and he doesn't. At least the theatrical and extended cuts don't want us to to feel like that was the case. There's a weird moment where Jared Leto's back is to the camera, and he's going, Oh, you and me, baby, we're going to paint the town red, in a strange piece of ADR. And then almost immediately, the helicopter jerks and Harley's falling. So it's possible that this Joker pushing her out of a window in the animated intro was a way of kind of correcting the correction of this element of the original version of Suicide Squad, wherein Joker was going to turn up at the end, throw grenades at them, laugh a lot, and generally be a villain. The whole film exists as a refutation of Suicide Squad's pitch of Harley and Joker as a strange couple that Hot Topic kids could enjoy and go, they're just like us! Principally because Jared Leto's Joker is maybe the worst character ever written as a sexy boyfriend. He's an abusive, murderous, pretentious creep. Injustice 2, the uh, Mortal Kombat-style fighting game, came out the year after Suicide Squad with a better Harley Quinn and Joker story. Because unlike Suicide Squad, where Joker rescues her at the end and 
they're back together. Yay, the couple we love. In Injustice 2, when you get to play Harley during the story mode, she has to fight Joker and move past that relationship. This puts her in line with a more modern contemporary version of Harley, who is someone strong enough to recognize how bad for her this guy really was. But even though that's the case, Joker still feels pervasive in this film, even though he's not in it. How is his influence still felt, at least especially in the early stages of this film? Well, one of the key things they do is, I think an important part of it is to make Gotham City a real place where the Joker and Harley have been like terrorizing and causing chaos throughout the city for however long they've been there. Uh, Get together and they set up that once she announces to everybody that they are done all these people you'd expect would come out the woodworks like they have affected people's lives and because they're not the sort of people who kills everybody they've left a bunch of enemies and now that she's separated herself from the joker some people are feel important to go after what is essentially this one person and I think it's key that they set up the police force, how they view the situation and other crime families. And uh, while he's not in the film, he's like not so much a spectre, but he's an element of world building, I suppose, would be a good way to put it. Mm. Mm. And the, the conversations mm. that everybody has about them and, and not necessarily the antics that they used to get up to, but the after effects of that and, yeah. and what that's left, the impression that's left on the world they are clearly, as in the Joker and Harley, were aside from and above all of the organised crime, family squabbling, back and forth things, scraps over turf. <laughs> from the sounds of things, nothing that they were involved in was to do with any of that power grappling. They were just this element of chaos that bounced around Gotham, making everybody's life difficult on both sides of the law. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's like, well, the Joker and Harley were just a menace on this city for such a long time. And hey, guess what? There are consequences for that. It is um, neat the way that uh, the film doesn't excuse Harley. It doesn't say, oh, you were with a bad man and he was bad to you. You are innocent of all this shit. Harley behaved like an asshole through, for mm-hmm. a, a long time. And this is kind of the fallout of that. Like uh, the Joker was her protection. And she was enjoying the consequence-free environment of uh, of having him that close. Mm. But she's even reluctant to admit that they've split up because she's hanging on to his reputation as a mm-hmm. safety yeah. net. So yeah, he, I think well, she knows that she once the cat's out of the bag, everybody's going to come after her mm. because they think she can't really protect herself anymore. So he may have been an enabler and an activator of her shitty um, and sometimes horrendous behavior, but uh, it was there to begin with, and she has to take responsibility for that. But the film, to begin with, concerns itself mostly with a breakfast sandwich, (laughs) which is a masterful uh, stroke of of, um, sweeping aside all of this big stuff and just kind of honing in on something that so many of us can relate to. When um, 
Christina Hodgson was talking about breakfast sandwiches and describing why it felt important to put this one in here. She was practically salivating at her description of what a, a really good breakfast sandwich is. And that's so much more relatable stakes than if we don't stop Thanos, the universe ends. <laughs> well, the universe goes in half. I just want to jump in and say that as a little homage to this movie, I actually had a fried egg and cheese breakfast sandwich this morning. Nice. So, yeah, I made one for myself. I added some avocado to it. It was very good. I ate them repeatedly after this you movie did. came out. You yes, had, you I got quite good the, at making them. Been, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could, and I totally relate to it because so, so going back several several years before I moved to Atlanta, I lived in New York for a couple of years and I worked in Times Square, which this movie definitely, like, it kind of took me back to that time in my life because Gotham is often equated with some part of New York City in some way. And it, it does kind of have a little bit of a, a New York, like Lower East Side feel to it in a way. Um, so I kind of, it kind of took me back to New York where I would go through Times Square and it kind of felt like going through a zoo or a circus every day getting to work. And I would stop by this diner and I would get an egg and cheese and bacon sandwich on a bagel every morning before I went into work. I was like, man, I relate to this stupid egg and cheese sandwich <laughs> so much right now because like this was the thing that like, carried me through the rest of the day like i literally could not start my day without it and very same as somebody who prides herself on being a purveyor of breakfast sandwiches i i could relate to harley on a level that i can't relate to basically any other superhero um i would also say that the the sandwich came to represent for me oh, yeah. something uh, in terms of having thrown everything away in the process of, of blowing up the chemical factory that announces to the world that she is now free of the Joker and therefore open season, uh, Harley sacrifices a couple of things in order to move forward into her new life. She sacrifices her shoe. shoe. Uh, <laughs> Which is why she's always walking around with just one shoe for most of the first two acts. Absolutely. But what she's effectively giving up there is stability and protection. Because her foot is now vulnerable, and because the other one has a high heel and she doesn't take it off, she's wobbling all over the place. <laughs> uh, but the the sandwich is like that's the first nourishment she has access to in her new life. She's she's had the night out of drinking and making herself sick, and the uh, the sandwich is supposed to initiate her recovery. She sacrifices her last dollar for it. But then because of what initiates, she can't get into the recovery phase of her um, getting away from the, the toxic relationship because nobody will let her eat. Uh, Montoya and company are actually, and everyone hunting her down, they're valid in their reasons to not let her eat. They're not interested in whether she wants to, do, uh, to uh, re revitalize her life. They want justifiable, in their eyes, revenge for the shit that she put them through. And this is her terrible, bad behavior. My second question, we actually need to go back a bit because the Joker one was my third. Um, this is one of my favorite story types, which is when an asshole slowly becomes a better person. Regarding things that we have not talked about so much yet, and we can dip into other mediums if you want to go to, uh, to Harley, uh, Harleen's past. How does her past inform upon her present? What's happened to her? And, and why does that inform upon her reactions beyond the Joker? Harleen's life is really that of, of codependency that we get to see. She starts out 
somewhat codependent on her father who trades her away for a pack of beer. She becomes, she attaches herself to people that break her heart. And what we know from other media is, is she's a very codependent person who gets herself into situations where people abuse her. And I'm like, I know some friends who are like that sometimes. And, um, this movie is really all about her ability to move away from that tendency where it's the sort of thing where she defines so much of her life by her relation to other people uh, that she needs to break away from that. She needs to find out who she is and who she can be before she can like move on. And we can see this in the business card that she's trying to handwrite for herself. She is listing out all the roles that she has been, could be, might want to be right now. And I did notice that she's actually crossed off psychiatrist. Yeah. And spelt it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's very, very drunk in that moment. She is, yes. Uh, and... and, and she also has the whole little speech about what a, a Harlequin does, mm. what, that, that a Harlequin's role is to serve. And the idea that her entire existence to the point where it is, you know, literally what her name is is referencing is just to serve someone else, the audience, a master. But this she needs to figure out how she can be herself how she can serve herself to a certain extent absolutely and sometimes if you are the focus of attention you can't do that because if an entire city is watching you how do you get long enough on your own (laughs) to work out who you are Would anyone like to discuss gender and potentially queer coding within this film? Hi! I think that's why you invited me. (laughs) (laughs) I had a hunch you might uh, have a few things to say. Hey, hey, hi, how are you? Um, (laughs) So, uh, unlike uh, some of the other times whenever I'm on, the people who made this aren't cowards, and... uh, Harleen is shown in the beginning in the in the animated sequence to have a girlfriend at one point, so she is very bisexual and is treated as no big deal. Uh, Renee Montoya is not just a lesbian, but an older lesbian, and it is not there for titillation. She it is just a thing that happens that complicates her relationship with the 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 DA person. That's in line with the, the comic as well, isn't it? Yes, Renee yeah. Montoya in the comic is much younger, and she becomes the question, and I think she ends up getting together with Batwoman, if I'm not mistaken. That would be Catherine Kane, the Batwoman, played by Ruby Rose in the first season of the TV show. But yeah, Montoya used to be with Ellen Yee in this movie, played by Ali Wong of the movie Always Be My Maybe, which I heartily encourage you folks to see. It's a funny, sad, sweet, romantic comedy drama with a pair of Asian leads for a change, where Keanu Reeves plays a heightened version of himself. Huntress, in particular, I find uh, delightful because, one, she's adorable, but two, uh, the Huntress from the comics that this movie got a lot of um, angry comments by the worst dregs of humanity on the internet uh, about her not being sexy enough. Uh, Huntress, and to a certain extent, Harley, are not made in this movie for the male gaze, as we call it, but rather, I would say, for the queer female gaze. Uh, because every single person I know who is 
of the feminine persuasion who is bisexual or sapphic in any way find Huntress to be very attractive and Harley uh, Harley is as well um and and I think that whoever was shooting this in particular really knew what to lean into for that purpose and I, I to a certain extent I can kind of understand why a lot of generally men are upset by not having the titillation for this movie since after all I come on here and talk frequently about you cowards please like why don't you make this for me mm, but there's a difference in ratio though uh, you're you're yeah. looking at a tiny bowl with four smarties in it and they right. have an over well overflowing pig's trough full of chocolate <laughs> to guzzle all day long until they're sick and then there's still more chocolate for them to eat and when I say Smarties, I mean British Smarties, which are little chocolate beans, not American Smarties, which are like fruit-flavoured powdery tablets. So yeah, the heterosexual majority have approximately one billion Smarties. The straights are going to be all right. Right, right. And and I'm, I was literally about to say that, but very well, Alex, that you had a much better metaphor than me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but that's the thing about... I just wanted you to get some more chocolate. I like chocolate. <laughs> Um, and, and I think it's also important in that same vein that Renee is being played by uh, an older woman compared to the rest of the cast. Like, she's in her 50s, I think. Usually, if a lesbian appears, it is for a very specific kind of titillation for the male gaze, not for just because that's who she is. That's what she is. That's how she is. The only other thing that I wanted to mention that goes into that kind of non-male gaziness is a kind of a series of... of moments in the movie that are very explicitly not something you see that are very feminine, very female coded. Uh, a lot of people have talked about the hair tie moment in the big fight at the end mm -hmm. in the booby trap. The idea that they're all fighting in this destroyed, antiquated uh, funhouse made out of uh, really women body parts. Uh, if you look at the, the set dressing, mm -hmm. but Harley gives uh, canary uh, a hair tie because as she's fighting her hair's getting in her face and it's such a simple moment but it is something that no one has done in a, in another movie the that number has... of times uh female heroes with long hair get into action scenes and i'm sat there going tie your hair back tie your hair back yeah <laughs> and you wouldn't be one... able to see anything <laughs> And in this one, they do it. It's incredible. But there's also two other smaller moments that I saw in this last viewing. One is a little bit of a gag whenever she's tied down uh, in, in the club and she says, look in my pocket. And the guy pulls out a tampon. She goes, no, my other pocket. You would think like it's sort of a gag, but it's not actually played as a gag. It is just, no, like, obviously, I'm, I carry that around because sometimes you need one. Mm. And uh, similarly, Black Canary in the club has very prominently on her shoulder what I'm pretty sure I can identify as a birth control patch. Yeah, I noticed that which, this time around. Which is something that's very much about, like, liberation of a person's body. The idea, like, a, a woman wearing a birth control patch prominently like that in some places and some parts of time have said more to like, I enjoy 
sex and I am in control of my body and I am comfortable with that in a way that, again, is casually done here that just isn't done in other places. I did notice this time the thing that Yelena points out Natasha does, like do an awesome kick, get low to the ground and then flip her hair up. You're a total poser. Harley does that during the jail cell fight in the sprinklers. So now just like Deadpool saying superhero landing, I can't not see that. And I would elaborate on uh, what you were saying about Huntress, and this can be expanded to apply to all of the women in this film, which is that the uh, that first off, as one of the people whose whose gaze was definitely going that way that you mentioned, um, the part of the appeal of it is capability. It's taking the attention away from how does this body look and moving the attention to what does this body do for the person who owns it. I think that lends itself also to how the action is shot in this movie, which I actually find much more appealing than something like Suicide Squad or Justice League, what you were saying about uh, Matoyo being an, an older woman. Like, if you look at that very last, you know, the final scene where, Victoria, you already mentioned, they have a lot of the really nice long takes where you can see all of the people moving and all the actions shot in a very clear way. She's going to fight very differently from somebody like Black Canary. She's going to fight very differently from Huntress. And... I think they really took advantage of the fact that their four, actually, I should say five leads were all these, you know, different types of women of different ages and different abilities to showcase how they fight and how they move. And that says something actually about their personalities. And like they let that come through in their fighting, which to me is a good indication of a, a well thought out and well choreographed. Um, fight set piece or action set piece and I think they they really took advantage of that and it was so like to me it was very satisfying to watch because not only can you see all these people's abilities you know not just the performers but the characters themselves play on their abilities but you also see the the differences in them and they really emphasize that and I just thought that was so cool and you don't get to see that very often you know if here you definitely see a distinction between the different styles between all the different women and i love the fact that they incorporate so many different types of action and so many different types of stunts in this thing they set up very early on that harley quinn has been going to some roller derby matches so Mm -hmm. she just has an excuse to have roller skates and one of the big action set pieces is her on skates holding on to a vehicle and doing all the different action involved with that. And I just thought that was great because these are things that you don't see very often. And it, I think it comes back to all the things you were saying about the, the, you know, whose gaze this is for and breaking down the gender stereotypes. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that roller derby itself is, is something of a feminine queer activity like I, mm-hmm. I i know i have a lot of friends who play roller derby it's one of the sports that is extremely open for trans women to play nice. they have very explicitly mm. uh inclusive rule sets and um there's there's although there are i mean i don't know about in america but in uh, the uk they have what are called women's leagues and men's leagues but they are very inclusive and they have been um uh, women playing in the men's leagues and vice versa and cis and trans you know, mm, yeah. yes cis and trans mm-hmm. men and women. oh side note by the way this watching all the roller derby stuff at the beginning of this twice in two days um i made me think 
I missed a film directed by Drew Barrymore called Whip It from like 2007 with... Um, Elliot Page. Elliot Page. Uh, very appropriate. We've now got to go check that one out because uh, it feels like that's... Um, yeah, for, for, for just following up on this particular brutal sport. I do also love the way they fold that into, again, it's part of Harley's reinvention of herself and and the, the connections that she seeks immediately after breaking free of the Joker and the, the uh, re rejuvenating of herself involved cutting her hair getting a dog Mm -hmm. and getting involved in contact sports but you notice in the contact sport she smacks some girl in the face and then rides off on her own Mm. like going yeah it's me to the audience that this illustrates the I'm going to lone wolf it at the beginning, which mm. is the misapprehension is the she's labouring she under. To, yeah, she has to work through. Also, I hadn't even realised that uh, there, there's a direct correlation between her scrappy um, business card at the beginning and the much more professional-looking one she passes over at the end, illustrating that she's much more together. In fact, it's almost deceptively together relative mm. to how chaotic it's she's dressed. Printed, but yeah. the but her determination to to go it alone and and her isolating herself kind of i mean the friends that she seems to be surrounded by at the beginning are not particularly good faith friends anyway she's ex- you know she expresses that she split up with the joker and they're like ah pff, she'll be back together with him in a week we never even see them in the face they're yeah, just sort of in the background just in the blurry. background yeah absolutely yeah. all of the birds of prey are isolated in their own way you pointed out that psychiatrist is uh, crossed out I feel like that's a really nice bit of characterization in that she's asked herself, no one wants to come to me to ask how not to be crazy. And yet she's actually really quite observant of lots of different characters in this. She even like works out that certain characters are just like simple puzzles that she solved on the first moment she sits down. But also that being a psychiatrist is not good for her. She yeah. she didn't have the boundaries to not fall in love with this incredibly toxic patient. Yeah. But let's discuss the other men first before we get to the women of Birds of Prey, as it won't take us too long. Roman Sionis, what's his problem? <laughs> I thought you said we weren't going to take that long. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about the, the queer coding for Roman Sionis and, and Victor Zaz Please do. quickly. Uh, yeah, uh, you can fold Zaz in as well because they're pretty much joined at the hip. They are different in their personalities, of course. Well, uh, Roman Sionis is just a, a terrible fail son. Of, of a rich family, and Victor Zaz is his little boy toy. And, I mean, Roman Sionis is all about uh, kind of multiple faces, two faces. I mean, his dad literally runs the Janus Corporation. And uh, his whole thing, he is at least bisexual, the way that he acts, the way that he is coded. And uh, Victor Zaz is absolutely gay for him. Like the, the interactions between the two characters, the way that Victor is like there to give him shoulder rubs, there to say just the right thing to calm him down. He's a homicidal Smithers. 
I, I mean, kind of, but I... <laughs> he gets oh, jealous of, uh, of yeah, any attention so, from Black Canary, or to Black so, Canary. Yeah, well... He's, yeah, like, badgering them when Roman's showing Canary uh, his uh, his collection of statues, and she's going, ah, oh, Yeah, she's like, he's like, oh, you'd love it. And she's like, would I? And he's like, no, it's dirty. <laughs> and and it, the way that he acts is very flamboyant and campy in a way that is that, that feels coded very like masculine queer he wears a lot of pastels uh and he he never says okay he always goes k and it's just like this this thing like i i know gay men who act like him to a certain extent when he's not a raving lunatic you know when he's not absolutely good i was gonna say please don't tell me you know people exactly like roman sionis we need you to have a face but (laughs) but i i've got so many they're in my fridge um Uh. but (laughs) it's the idea that um while harleen is all about like getting out of an abusive relationship what we see with sionis and zaz is another kind of abusive relationship zaz manipulates him multiple times and sionis kind of lets him to a certain extent kind of leans into it they almost they remind me of a kind of gay couple who has absolute disdain for femininity which i have met some gay men who definitely have that kind of of mentality and while one who is more bisexual like plays into the other one's jealousy for kind of power trippy reasons it all kind of feeds into each other because Sionis wants to be the center of attention and Zaz is more than happy to give him all the attention he needs but Sionis needs other people to pay attention to him which makes Zaz more angry and do things out of jealousy that then fuels Sionis more and it is a very specific, very abusive kind of relationship that the two of them have. And while we could talk a lot about the um, potential problems with coding the villains queer as well, the quote-unquote villains, although everyone has a villainous streak perhaps in this movie to a certain extent, the context, the actual like layers and texture of their relationship feels so much more realized than just the idea of like, oh, he's gay or like, oh, he's he's bisexual or, or whatever, that it doesn't it doesn't like offend me. Like I, I actually saw this with my old roommate when it first came out, who is himself a gay man. And we had this long conversation about whether or not it was okay that Zaz and Sionis were were coded as such. And uh, in the end, like we we came down on like, yeah, kind of. But at the same time, like there's a lot of queer coding on a lot of characters in this film. And for them, it ends up being so much more deep and and complicated than just a simple tokenism. Mm. Mm. And I think we've we've said before, Victoria, um, that if you if you're going to avoid stereotyping, um, then it's it, you really need to have sort of at least three representations of the the type of character that you want to put out there because that way you can include um, a, a a deal of variety that makes it feel less like you're saying this is what all of this kind of person is like. And one thing that I I noticed about this this time round is there is no. Uh, what you would normally expect to see in a movie, there is no straight, upright, decent dude to suggest that this is the standard against which all the other characters will be measured. 
everybody is off the rails or off the deep end or there's something going on for everybody that that does not need to be constantly compared to a, a core here's what people should be like because they're all bouncing off each other and that that ends up leading a little bit into kind of how the patriarchy is treated in this which could be a whole other section but even the the one person who is coded to be the one good man is doc who absolutely sells her out and in reality the one good man in this movie is sal because he makes a mean breakfast sandwich and mm-hmm. that's it and then takes no further role in the production yeah yeah he doesn't even speak. Role. yeah he's the catering <laughs> staff yeah he was he also literally was the catering staff he was the cook from the catering that went oh there nice <laughs> <laughs> so at least we know they had good sandwiches <laughs> at one point Sionis is literally wearing silk pajamas with his face on them mm. yes he has monogrammed gloves so he doesn't forget who he is absolutely yeah um but the one one thing that i did want to say about Sionis is that he's there are multiple conversations in this where people kind of speculate why he might be the way he is what's in his background that that causes him to to act this way but ultimately, I think it, it, what it comes down to is it doesn't matter why he is who he is because his actions have such fatal consequences that trying to pass out the reasons for them is too dangerous. He just needs to be dealt with. Yeah. No, uh, it's, yeah. this is, again, why I'm not particularly interested in, in trying to get to the bottom of what makes serial killers tick. In this mm. case, Zaz is effectively a serial killer working as a Smithers. Yeah. But there's, this, there's oh, a yeah. fantastic moment in the middle of Dinah's song in the club. Mm. She gets to the verse about uh, Lost lost and his lonely. And she is singing at Roman's back. He is literally ignoring her, potentially speculating on the, the what underpins his narcissism. But like I said, it doesn't matter he's too dangerous to analyze at this point side note that is maybe one of the sexiest songs i have ever seen anyone sing ever <laughs> james brown will be proud yeah and sionis is all about having two faces like that that is like literally woven into the character showing one face but really having another he he changes his his attitude on a dime he his rage comes to the forefront mm. and to a certain extent him putting on this kind of rich playboy face at the club, but really being probably gay is itself a kind of coding that leans into every, the other aspects of his character. But when everyone's flattering him with his, you know, uh, view on the world and sort of appreciating the art that he appreciates because they're scared of him, you know, everything's hunky-dory. The moment something breaks that, a snot bubble, he, your life can just drop off the map for him. He's bone-chilling in, in terms of, okay, so that's all it would really take? Just that, that when he goes, ew, that's like a, a, a hunting call that, like, he's pulling away and you're about to die. And when I say Journey Smollett's song as uh, Black Canary is the sexiest I've ever seen, I don't mean on a superficial level of her just sort of standing on stage looking astonishing, which she does. There is, well, the whole subtext of the film is in that song. There is a beauty and an anger in it. It's astonishing the way that is performed. This is This is a man's world But it would be nothing 
that relates to Sionis ends up being red. His his club is red and gold. When Canary is singing that song, the entire background is red and black surrounding her. When Harleen decides that she's going to sell cast to uh, Sionis, the red taillights of Doc driving away light up her face. Uh, their costumes gain and lose red in them as they become closer or further away from Sionis. And the nice. primary the primary color scheme that all five of them have is primarily golds and blues with a couple of variations. Huntress ends up being more sepia because she has so many flashbacks. Montoya ends up being more navy with like a, a little bit of the white like flashing lights like a like the, because you know she's a cop. Cassandra starts out with this uh, yellow and blue and red jacket showing that she could kind of go in any direction. When she swallows the diamond, she's wearing a new jacket that is entirely red. And in the final scenes, it is mostly falling off of her as she's kind of coming around to the other the other four away from Sionis and then blows him up, which is beautiful. And then Harley is primarily blue and hot pink, very explicitly not red and I, I kept noticing it all of the times red showed prominently with something that tied back to Sionis uh, he wears red a couple of times although he usually wears more 
Peach. His face, um, Peach. He wears a lot of pastels, but a lot of the set dressing around him is red. A lot of the lighting ends up being red. And um, it seems Victor like Zanz, he looked at Don Johnson when he was watching Miami Vice in the eighties, and then never changed his style. Yeah, well, and Victor Zaz wears uh, a lot of things that have red incorporated into it. He wears a lot of stripes with red lines going through it, much like the scars that are hidden underneath Bloody it. Cuts, yeah. And yeah, and this is no more. And and I get to talk about this just very briefly. This is so obvious in the best shot in the entire movie. The very long take at the beginning, introducing both Rene Montoya and the crossbow killer, because when once it goes into the scene in the uh the Italian restaurant where Montoya and the other cops are talking about the four dead bodies there. It is bathed in red and Navy because of the lights outside, because they're the cops investigating it. And there are no cuts until they leave that restaurant. So as the camera is spinning around, the lights themselves change into a sepia for when Huntress comes in and they play that whole scene of her killing them. And then it's as it spins back around, the lights very abruptly go back to that navy to show Renee like saying this was the target. It is beautiful, and it so perfectly describes like what I'm talking about. On the subject of Renee Montoya, what are her challenges as a cop who is female, gay, and a decent person? She's surrounded by corruption. This is a little bit metatextual, but we know that Gotham Police Department is not to be relied upon. Mm. Well, I'm, uh, this is a wonderful Christmas dinner. I understand there's one more plate at the table. Who, who, who else is coming to this thing? Uh, Eckhart, dear. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I will never have enough of the way he says, oh, my God. What a reaction. The patriarchy that is, is hurting them from a cultural perspective that is embodied by Sionis. So mm. for her... Her work is taken over by a cop that doesn't do the work at all, but takes all of the credit for it, which seems like a very professional kind of patriarchy. She's even dinged for her dress code, which is a very common thing in such spaces. Mm-hmm. Renee is, is up against it the whole time. She's having to crawl uphill through a forest of colleagues that don't respect her don't or her seniority. Her seniority. Don't respect the uh, the process of finding evidence and solving crimes, which is what you're there for. You would think, wouldn't you? You would. <laughs> Dinah Lance is quite literally denying the call. Discuss. She is refusing to use her voice. It's the perfect sort of um, explanation of why someone ends up working for someone like Batman. In the world with actual like heroes and like Batman and everything, with a mother who tried to had the same abilities, tried to do exactly what morally she knows she was she wanted to do. The fact that that broke so bad and she grew up with the aftermath of that going so badly, you can clearly see like she just took opportunities that were available to her. Mm. Even in that, she's found a way that most normal people in that situation was they become an informant for the police. Like I, I know I'm, I'm in a bad place, but at least I'm trying to put some sort of good out there. And that constant guilt tripping yourself, even though, like, don't have much of a choice, is really fascinating to see that person being the sympathetic person. It's something you'd find more in the TV shows like The Wire, Mm. where you get to focus on the low-level criminal, like how they ended up there. And they're not a bad person. They just have 
a bad situation. Dinah's also the only one of them who has an actual superpower to speak of. The only person in the film. And she avoids using it until she's they're backed into a corner mm. and it is literally the only way they can get out. So I originally interpreted it as Dinah was living in the past and the fact that she gets introduced in her private life uh, with that song by the Three Degrees. It's Collage, the opening track from their inaugural 1970 album, Maybe. It's a serious throwback to a time when Dinah's mother was probably very small herself. I think she's living in the past. I think she's running from it, scared that anything to do with that will touch her and that every time she uses her voice, that's kind of letting it in. Journey Smollett's uh, very, very accomplished in this film at portraying two things at once. Repeatedly, she shows fear, but restrains it. And she show, she fakes interest in what the two dangerous men are trying to uh, uh, get her into. So like when Zaz is saying, you're going to be the new driver, she's like, eh, okay, please don't cut my throat. Mm. There's a great moment that shows that when Sionis is being particularly vindictive and, and sadistic towards somebody and she can't do anything to stop it. She just stands there. There are tears rolling down her face, but her expression is immobile. Mm. And when she fights, this is... I love that fight outside the back of the van. For a start, it's... She sees Harley being um, dragged away by some guys and uh, she's uh, about to pass out and Dinah knows what's going to happen. We've seen this, you know, repeatedly uh, in, in every kind of, like, uh, vigilante where a woman gets attacked by dudes who are sort of sniggering rapists. But there's a real weight to the fact that Dinah has to start to walk away, turns around and then comes back because she actually is a decent person. Like, not just a decent person, but a very brave person. The decent thing to do would be to call for help. She actually goes in to, to stop it herself, has the confidence that she can stop it. But when they trade blows, she's like getting punched in the gut and kicked and, and she's just like, Ugh, uh, and she, like, she really fucking weighs into them. She's got these kind of taekwondo moves for her, uh, uh, these incredibly long, like springy legs of hers. She has this poise and elegance and that hair. My God, this woman. Um, but just I, it just impressed the hell out of me just how she can take the punches and sell the punches in the actual fight scenes. Not just the doing of them, but the having them delivered. The receiving of them, yeah. yeah. 
Mm. And she can kick so high in those tight pants. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> a lot of comic book fans were cheesed off, uh, understandably, with the fact that Cassandra Kane was wildly different from her character in the comics. And I've heard, why not just have made her a completely different character and save Cassandra Kane to be someone else closer to that at a later date? I think it's it's kind of the inverse of Taskmaster. What they did with uh, uh, that is to, I won't spoil Black Widow, folks, is to take a character that already existed, a move set that already existed effectively and change the character out from under that move set to make them much more personal to the uh, heroine in this case. What we've done here is we've taken all the moves away from Cassie Kane and made her into another character by dint of the fact that she can't do all of that stuff. They needed someone who was effectively not exactly helpless, but needed defending, needed protecting. Depowered. Disempowered, yeah. Yeah. She starts in a similar position to the other women in the sense that they're all they're all kind of two positions down from everyone else. They're all they've all got some clambering to do before they even get up to level ground. And by giving Cassie this background of a home life that feels unsafe and that she doesn't want to be there and very few people around keeping an eye on her so she's having to look out for herself the whole time, that brings in for her that isolation that I was talking about. There are reasons why she doesn't have people that she can lean on and therefore is going to be ultimately achieving something by learning to lean on the group that she finds herself with. Cass, you know, being this very self-reliant, self-sufficient person kind of makes her the perfect contrast to someone like Harley, who has been set up as being very codependent. Mm. Mm. She and has to kind of learn constantly. Some... So, yeah, she's yeah. an independent uh, but needs protection, while Harley does need protection but doesn't even recognize that. She's just like... Harley is oftentimes baffled when people go after her and try to kill her. And it's it's... Amusing and sad and also characterizing to see her kind of rack her brains as over what is it that I did to piss you off each time? I know it was something. <laughs> I just yeah, it's just so what. insignificant to her that she doesn't even remember. Yeah, but that's a pattern of bad behavior that she needs to break. So, I mean, even the, the this slew of things she could have done to piss off Roman Sionis. But that's the thing. One of them was pronounced it expresso. And it's like, th- this guy gets upset over far too much. The fact that there's so many things on the list of possibles, um, to me, suggests that it's really easy to get on Black Mask's bad side. Oh, yeah. Oh, another thing, um, I think it was said in one of the um, uh, making of pieces, is that uh, Cassie has no sense of self. She can't, like she is in fairly desperate need of mentorship. She, she needs to be able to bond with people that she can rely on. As you said, she has no support. So the moment that Harley starts kind of talking to her she like to begin with she's like yeah let me get out of here but then it turns out that harley is just much more interesting and and uh you know she gets kind of a big sister vibe almost immediately Mm. a lot of that is to do with the fact that she's 12 yeah Helena has spent her lifetime practicing vengeance with nothing else on the menu. How does this leave her in terms of outlook and personality? She's such a dork. I love her. <laughs> it's like a teenager who indulged in like all like the edgy stuff from like the uh, early two thousands mm. and like 
identified themselves as like, that's me, that's who I am. Like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get my revenge. And no, I'm not just going to shoot people with the gun. No, I'm going to get a crossbow. What, what sort of person chooses to use a crossbow? Like, that's love- clearly the decision of someone's like, oh, that sounds super cool. I'm not going to acknowledge that. I just think it's cool and that's why I'm doing it. I'm, and, and it's very representative of whenever um, somebody calls it a bow and arrow and she's like, it's a crossbow, I'm not a child. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's like practicing her lines in the hotel mirror, just being like, oh, they yeah. call me. And, and just the, the, that scene is so good. She wants to be cool so bad. And, and just no one will give it to her because everybody's like, the crossbow killer? She, yeah, because she's so bad at it. She's not cool at all. She's super awkward. And, and like you said, she's such a dork. It's like, she's, it's like she's playing at being an adult and doesn't know how. And so no one will take her seriously. So it's like, yeah. no, I'm not going to call you Huntress. I'm going to call you the crossbow lady or whatever. Like, no one will <laughs> give her that. And on the other hand, it's perfectly understandable for... This is a person who's in Gotham, a low-level assassin. Yes, I can understand why they'd also think I could get, I can get, I can name myself and be called the Huntress and go around with the crossbow. Because this is Gotham City and it's filled with weird criminals. <laughs> but the problem is she's giving herself a name instead of being named, and that's not cool. <laughs> but this, yeah, like, you're this... not allowed to do that. You can't do. I mean, like, there's a guy running around. I, I don't know how much this goes into like actual canon but i know in the animated series there's a guy running around with just a ventriloquist dummy yeah he's yes. the ventriloquist so, <laughs> and he's the ventriloquist yeah somebody obviously saw that one well he's the ventriloquist he ran with it she refuses to run with the names that people give to her it's like no 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 i i, I have my own i am cool i am an adult you i'm gonna prove it to you she had so much to prove but, and she's so bad at it. But she does get her moment when she, after she stabs okay. the guy going down mm. the slide, they, they're all staring at her and she's like, what? And Harley's like, you are so cool. And just the look on her face of like, I have made it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, like, like, I think, I think importantly, uh, she's just found her people. Mm-hmm. The fundamental thing about her is the reason why this name doesn't take though. And I, the way I wrote it down was her single-minded awkwardness. She doesn't speak to anybody who does she talk to that she could say my name is the huntress she only really says it to people that she's just shot if you're gonna be have a name in gotham you've got to turn up gatecrasher party with a big load of stuff going on and loads of like hench people it's going to cost you to get the henchmen mm-hmm. uh, and you have to announce your name loudly to the party goers and say you've just been conned by the condiment king and then leave and let and them spread let them the word talk about the name because exactly. if, if you just shoot everyone then they'll all be dead there's no one and to spread it around she is good at what she does mm-hmm. Yeah. Only the killing really efficiently and quickly, like John Wick. Notably, this is the John Wick stunt team. It's the talking that she's no good at because she's so, so socially, mm-hmm. she's malpracticed at, at social uh, behavior. The fact that she often seems to be wearing shell suits and things and like has no sense of style and like gets quite shirty when people start talking about her clothes. Like, I think she dresses like, like it's, it's really awesome and distinct, but it makes it look like she's been in a bubble watching those edgy 2000s films and wearing shell suits that her uncles lent her and 
never really integrating with society. Absolutely. She is imposter syndrome personified. Mm. I mean, I, yeah. I ultimately mm. I was I'm watching this going, "Oh my god, this is like the the core of me is her." And I I just <laughs> I relate to her so hard. I have spent yeah. Like, I've been an adult now for a little bit over 20 years, and in that time, I have got quite good at being able to pretend like I can converse with people. But there is a level where I'm like, nope, someone's going to find out that deep down, this is how I feel. I can't hold a conversation. I don't know what to say. It's yeah. bad. <laughs> she always reacts very strongly at the uh, end when uh, everyone sort of, uh, when Canary and Montoya bump fists and she goes, oh yes, I'll, I'll bump a fist I'll, for I'll that one. On that. <laughs> the best parts yeah, for me. I thought that was great. Something, that. Yeah. When something happens that she genuinely expresses joy at and she's like, she yeah. bursts out laughing and nobody else does. And then there's this moment of, okay. <laughs> the tragic comic thing about it is that she kind of froze at the point that her family were killed and she is still mm. like a 10 year old girl. Mm. Yeah. She's trapped in that trauma. Mm. And in, in many ways, she's using this persona as a, like a shield of, as long as I'm the huntress in her mind, like I can go out and do this. Mm. Even though like, as you, as we've, as both uh, Alex and Sharon have said, like you're an assassin. The key thing is people don't know that you've done what you've done. Hmm. So there's nobody to know your name. But the fact that she's using this as a form of uh, armor to, I suppose it's, it's that sort of thing where as long as I'm being this person, I can keep doing this. I don't have to think about like losing a normal life with the family. Mm. And she's, maybe she needs a business card like Harley. But the, oh, as, yeah. as Harley... Well, really, if she's been watching those early early 2000s things, she needs to get a small like gel kerosene and then <laughs> f- spell out the word huntress in kerosene on the floor and then wait for one of the cops to throw down a cigarette because they know <laughs> it's going to burn huntress along the street. But as, as Harley... Huntress? <laughs> no! As Harley explains to her... Psychologically speaking, vengeance rarely brings the catharsis we hope for. Yeah. Are we ready? (laughs) But she's not going to be able to move on until that kill list is finished with, until Mm. she has done something with all of that that revenge desire that's been building up, then she's not going to be able to grow and nourish herself and become somebody else. So Canary's uh, running from the past. Uh, Helena has got the past to kill before she can move forwards. And Montoya is having real difficulty seeing a future where she is respected in the police force. Danger, danger. Danger, danger. Uh, we can talk about the amazing stunt team. This is uh, going to be my speciality, I'm going to guess. Is it, is it 8711? 8711 is a stunt team that's based out of California. Obviously, they're the team that was behind all the John Wick movies. Um, they, But they've done a lot of different stuff. I mean, the 8711 guys have done everything from the Hunger Games movies to Marvel pictures. They've, you know, members of them have continued on to doing the Marvel streaming shows for Disney Plus. So, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of very prolific, very, very talented people that have been around for a very long time. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Chad Stahelski, one of the main guys and the, the, the directors of the original John Wick, 
was Neo in the Matrix. So oh, nice. this this guy goes back a ways. <laughs> um, and, you know, is, I, I can't remember if he was involved in this in, in any capacity, but there, there's a lot of people involved with the actual team. So various people kind of get spread out to do different stuff. Like Chad could be working on one thing while Sam Hargrave is working on the Avengers or whatever, you know, like, so it's it's not necessarily always the entire team and they don't always use all of their members to do this stuff you mentioned renee moneymaker before she doubled for uh, margot robbie in this yes um renee also uh coincidentally was also um jennifer lawrence's stunt double in the hunger games movies uh she was one of carol danvers stunt doubles for a minute that is correct. Uh, she, yeah she's been like yeah but she's you know she's all over she was a, a double for the wasp in some of the ant-man and avengers movies so she's and is like a former uh, basically olymp i don't think she ever got to the point that heidi her sister ever did um but she's uh, heidi's black widow know, isn't she heidi's black widow yes yeah. and uh is coordinating the hawkeye series oh, right nice. now nice yeah, so cool. she's kind of moving up in, in that sense as well. But uh, Renee's pretty much right behind her in being like an Olympic-level gymnast. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, super, super talented people behind this. And um, they, she's got uh, a, Margot Robbie, just looking behind the curtain a little bit, had a, a different double. She was an Australian lady whose name escapes me right now. But different double for the Suicide Squad. But, again, has just done a ton of stuff and has been you know in involved in these things for probably well over 10 years at this point i can confirm that chad stahelski was indeed second unit director or assistant director in this uh sorry second unit director is, yeah. is, is what he's credited as that's the first mm -hmm. time he's done that since captain america civil war yeah that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty a common thing for uh, stunt coordinators to go on to be second unit directors. Mm. That happened with Sam Hargrave as well in, uh, in Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. He stepped up to do the second unit directing and Monique Ganderton took over the stunt coordinating mm. um, duties. But that, that happens a lot because the second unit is often responsible for the big action sequences and putting together all of the like the big action set pieces that's really what they're in charge of so a lot of times you will find that second unit directors are current or former stunt people because they know how to direct action so that's what they're there for i don't know whether it was uh, chad or kathy who directed the police station scenes and the uh, cell block scenes but that put together is I mean, it's all—it's pretty much Matrix level for me. It's—it's uh, it's mm -hmm. not as as uh, physics defying as the Matrix, but in terms of if you stacked the, uh, you know, I'd like to report a uh, terrible crime, a terrible crime. This one, and then she just sort of marches around with her fun gun, firing off grenades that explode in glitter and and they're, yeah, they're basically smoke. glitter bombs. It's so gorgeous to watch her effectively, oh, not yeah. non-lethally taking down so many cops. That whole sequence in the prison cells probably my it's one of my favorite action sequences in the whole movie. That in the fun house I really love, yeah. but I think it's just in how it was shot. It's like you can really see the action very well. 
yes, they incorporate some slow man, slow motion, a little bit of ramping, but not to the point where like it actually detracts from the performances because you can see the people taking the wrecks. You can oh, yeah. see the people taking the reaction, the reactions. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about movies like this, where they're like, nope, we're going to shoot this super wide. We're going to let the actors do as much as they can, which Margot Robbie is actually very good at that too. She does a lot of her own action stuff as well. You know, just give her a little bit of credit too. She, she trains for this kind of stuff as well, but to have it really on display like that and not 15 cuts, like some of those uh, taken movies I could mention, (laughs) Uh, but like really letting you see all the action. It's really well done. And the effects with the glitter, the water, there's a lot of like reflective stuff. That's just very visually appealing as well. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Maya. Like, one of the key things I love for a good action scene is being able to take in what's happening instead of the constant shot, cutting, someone throws a punch, cut to someone being hit, cut to the person finishing the punch. Like, you get Mm -hmm. to see the follow-through and all the movement, and it gives everything more weight because, like, you actually see it connect and the person react, and you're letting the stunt people, like do what they've been trained to do. They know how to sell a hit. Yeah. It preserves the flow of the scene. Also, Mm -hmm. it makes it like just in where it exists in space and how it's all choreographed. Like it makes more sense when you can see it all sort of kind of flow together like that. And on the subject of color as well, the, uh, the smoke and the glitter and everything flying around, this is bisexual pride flagging it all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the reason like I can, sexual lighting. The, yeah. the reason I compare yeah. it to the Matrix is that like, it has that the finale that's it's just like the lobby, then the helicopter shootout, and just that each sequence leads on to it the next, um, and they change the setting all, and the pace and the music. Uh, each time and that leads on to the Smith Neo fight and that my name is Neo and that you're not going to dead name me anymore and then you can get hit by a train pal um, but in this there's um, the moment like it just keeps sort of changing gears so like you get the much more ramping in the rain like at the sprinkler systems during the middle fight and then when she's in the warehouse it's like when she gets hold of the baseball bat she's got this immense precision to her like you'd, you you think harley quinn you just think pure chaos but when she sort of moves around with this almost regimented like you know i know exactly where to put my body i know exactly what to do with this uh, baseball bat to take out these three guys as though she's done it so many millions of times in her head mm-hmm. and it's the like it's yeah. her one major talent that she has beyond all of the rest well, of what, the stuff what i love about the fact that she goes for the baseball bat is it's simple it is a, yeah. a metal stick and you hit things. And if the thing you hit is softer than the baseball bat, it's going to break. Mm. You you yeah. see yeah. in this sequence, Harley trying to interact with a complicated thing, the computer that opens up the doors. Mm. She tries. <laughs> she tries really hard to do it right, it but it doesn't work. And so she just smacks it until it just gives up. And she just smashes it until it does. But I mean, exactly. in the cartoon, her weapon of choice was always a giant mallet. Mm. Yeah. So it kind of tracks that she would move on to something like a baseball bat. Also, 
another thing that's very in keeping with her character, which I love that they incorporated this, is Harley Quinn was an acrobat at some point, or mm, like she yes. did some form of acrobatics and gymnastics. So she's supposed to be very agile and very like acrobats and gymnasts are so precise in their movements. They always know exactly where they are in space. They have excellent spatial awareness and they always know how, or at least you know the good ones, they know how to stick the landing and they know you know the geography of where they're gonna land so her precision with that absolutely makes sense with her background as an acrobat mm. and one thing that uh renee moneymaker said in the uh some of the the side bits was that what the stunt team really enjoyed about getting into this was the fact that these characters all had very different personalities very different fight styles and they got to adapt the routines so that the the characters would come through in the fights rather than it being that thing where, like you said at the very beginning, Victoria, where it's this constant jump cutting, you can't really see what's going on, and the action, frankly, could be switched out for another movie and it wouldn't really make much difference. This is the antithesis of that. It's very much within this action you will see a continuation of the story because the way they move Mm -hmm. is embodying their personalities and their characters and actually and a good a good fight scene and a good action sequence is is exactly that it's giving you something about the character and i can say also as a performer it is way more satisfying to be able to do a scene like that where you really do have to think about your character in the moves that you're doing something as simple as you know being a sorcerer as a background fighter in the avengers you're wearing this costume and you're imbuing this character that makes you fight very differently from one of the ravager aliens from the guardians of the galaxy you have to think about those things when you're actually performing and you know as a as an actor, as a stunt person, as a performer, it is always so much more fun to take those things into consideration as opposed to just throwing some punches and kicks. is going on in that fun house at the end there's quite a few readings of it that we could make and uh, victoria you've been quiet for a while so you want to pipe up on this one <laughs> well everybody else had stuff to say i talked a lot but the I, I i to me the movie is an awful lot about patriarchal objectification of the women characters all of the men characters in the movie are problematic in some way with the exception of Sal the saint who makes breakfast and the saint of breakfast perhaps going to something called the booby trap which is so thoroughly uh, the, the the scenery is so thoroughly just an objectification of uh, women of the, the, the womanly form the feminine form that uh, that is like old and dusty used and thrown away in in such a, a blatant way, 
feels like a pretty appropriate place. Harley takes uh, Cassandra there after she has decided to uh, essentially give in to the, the patriarchal circumstances after being bathed in red light, like I said before. And she goes to this hollowed out husk of feminine objectification. But in the end, they fight their way out of it, absolutely beating down all of these tools of the literal patriarchy coming after them. And if you want to continue the color theme, the walls of the funhouse are green and red, green being a color associated with basically no one but the Joker Mm -hmm. in this movie, and red being the color associated with Sionis. So all around them is this reminder, this physical representation of the kind of misogyny, the kind of oppression that all five of them are victims of. And in the and very literally Sionis and and the Joker in the color scheme of the the walls of the place, but they push through it anyway. They work together, they support each other. Uh, very literally helping each other with particularly dangerous foes or even just breaking away from one fight to destroy somebody that was uh, going to attack one of their friends. And the hair tie scene, of course, and and the quick shoe change, which is, I love that they lampshade <laughs> that. Um, it's just such a great moment in an otherwise like hectic action scene of just, when did she have time to change her shoes? <laughs> and the moments of support as well, like you said, that the hair tie is one, but also when uh, Cassie is cowering in the corner and Helena finds her and gives her the, the little toy car that she <laughs> used as a focus point to get her through the the circumstance when her whole family was shot mm. and and even that ends up being very uh character it, it, it's a good characterization moment for helena because uh cassandra's like what the hell is this like, like the look on her face isn't like relief or focus or anything she's just like what mm. but 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 to Huntress, she's like, no, no, I have done a good thing in this moment. Like, hmm. I, I, I have done what is supposed to be done in this. I know what happens in this situation. There's one particular long shot, a long take, of um, all of the characters on the rotating platform in the middle. It shows somebody going after Cassandra, and then her being saved by one of the other characters, pushing Cassandra away to be attacked by another person, to immediately be saved by another character. And it goes the whole way around until all four of them are protecting this person who is, to a certain extent, the younger generation of of women. The idea that they are, they are fighting and protecting and, and preventing the same kind of, of punishment that they all have suffered from. Millennials and one aging Generation Xer protecting Gen Z. Sionis only cares about the diamond, the literal object that is within Cassandra. He has no interest in the person Cassandra is. Absolutely. And he's already been shown to like, he'll just slice you up for whatever. So he'll definitely cut somebody open to get a very valuable object that's inside of them. The women and everyone represents to him only what they can do for him. He's a little high chair tyrant and uh, he doesn't see people. They are his things. You don't do things to his things. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a strange parallel, actually, because there's several little links to uh, Moulin Rouge in this. The um, uh, as Willow pointed out, the Diamonds Are Our Girl's Best Friend obviously worked better in, in Moulin Rouge, but um, the 
That it, I, it's a fabulous film. But um, it's Ewan McGregor, both times. And in one, he's the sweetest man alive. In the other one, he's the, the most terrifying psychopath. There's uh, several notes that feel like um, they're acknowledging the heritage to um, previous movies that have come. The, the funhouse music is Barracuda by Hart, which means firstly that this movie has heart, but because you've got the three degrees in there as well, it also has soul. <laughs> That played in Charlie's Angels, the original Drew Barrymore one from the year 2000. Oh. Um, and I, I don't think that's a mistake. Like, I, I feel like a lot of the women, like, a lot of women watched that film, and even though it was uh, uh, considered to be cheesy and rubbish at the time, took quite a lot from it. And yeah, you know, I, I think I think that tracks, especially not. because Drew Barrymore was like very much involved in. Yeah, I, I can't remember if she was a producer she on it producer. or she helped. Yeah, or, and she may have also possibly uh, helped write it as well. But yeah. she was super, super involved with the creative process of that. And Birds of Prey does have a very Charlie's Angel feel to it. Yeah, uh, actually, on that, uh, Margaret Robbie actually said like one of her inspirations was the old Charlie's Angels movies because nice. she's always been a long fan of it. So that it was an explicit sense. reference. Nice. Uh, and there's also, no one likes this film, but Tank Girl. If you go back and watch that now, Tank Girl Laurie Petty talks to us the way that Harley does and is in a similar situation uh, that she's sort of like set adrift. There's a vicious, predatory, humorless man played by Malcolm McDowell who's in charge of everything. And he's the one after her. And like Bugs Bunny, the whole time. She's the one laughing and joking during a really fucking dire situation. Laughing through torture at her captor to enrage him further because men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. And we are party to that through her. It, it was another film directed by a woman. It was another sci-fi that people um, did not particularly warm to and it tanked. And we will definitely be doing a show on it uh, at some stage. But I feel like that was the, uh, the the Gen X mother figure to uh, this version of uh, Harley Quinn. Yeah, that would make sense. She almost feels like a precursor to, to the live-action Harley Quinn. Oh, and both films, now that I think about it, have a Cole Porter-style musical scene right yes. in the middle, which uh, birds do it, bees do it, even educated yeah. fleas do let's it. Let's do it, uh, let's in fall in Tango. love. Yeah. Again, it's got that same kind of anarchic LGBTQ energy to it as well, and uh, I think... Watching it now, it would end up a lot more flattering than if you watched it in the 90s and you were expecting Batman Forever or something. Or, mm. I don't know, Barb Wire? The standards were so <laughs> screwball in those days. So yeah, uh, the Founders Pier is where this um, uh, fight sequence ends up. Uh, anyone want to read anything into that? The Founders mm. is a very masculine word to start out with. So the fact that, like, you know, that it comes up when you think of, like, the founders of the, the nation, especially in America, like the founders are referred to as like the first of the American presidents. Mm. So that kind of conjures up some very specific, you know, uh, gendering just in, in its name, just in its title. Yeah. And and the, of the statues there, the majority of them are uh, of a masculine silhouette, but there are a few that are of a more feminine silhouette. I was paying extra attention yeah. today. Uh, for, for me, the biggest moment is Harley having her little speech 
when she thinks she has Sionis about how she doesn't need anyone because she's Harley fucking Quinn and she shoots the statue because it turns out Harley does need other people, just not people she's in a relationship with. She, she needs like friends and or in this case, an apprentice who promptly puts a grenade down Sionis's pants. <laughs> Symbolism. Yes. <laughs> I think the for me the fact that it, it all ends on this pier is there's a there's a vestigial element to it. There's a these are all the people that we consider important and we consider them so important that we're gonna stick them out on this rickety wooden boardwalk out into the sea where we don't have to look at them. A kiss on the hand, maybe quite continental. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat. Or help you at the If you've been where Harley Quinn has been and I don't want to speak for all women because hashtag not all women, but a lot of women have probably been in a, in a place where Harley has been, where you've either been through a bad breakup and you've just left this toxic person behind, or you have been out drinking all night and you really, really need some protein and some carbs and some <laughs> grease to just get you through the morning or both. You've had both in the same night. And the one thing that you are holding on to with like every inch of your soul is this little breakfast sandwich that is in your hand. It, it is the most important thing to you in the entire world in this moment. And when it gets destroyed and is just in pieces all over the pavement, it is now the worst thing that has ever happened to you. And it completely ruins your life and derails everything else that you had going on. Because this was like the one good thing to come out of all of that toxicity and all that negativity. It's John Wick's puppy. Yes. <laughs> it really, I, yeah, I mean, like, gosh. Really, so hard that stupid egg sandwich. But that's the thing: is like if you've never been in that situation, if you've never had to go through a harrowing breakup or a horrible night of like drunken self-destruction, and like this was the only thing giving you hope at the other end, and it gets destroyed in front of your face, then yeah, it probably is going to come across as kind of stupid and childish, and like, why should I care? This is an outrage. I was going to eat that puppy. Ew. There is a reason that in production, Margot Robbie lobbied for this to be an ensemble piece. She, she's like, they were offering her an origin story. And she said, no, 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 no. This Harley was created for Batman, the animated series to field the Joker's thoughts. And Bruce Timm and company suspected that he would scare the children too much without her. And so they made this kind of child friendly, like, um, assistant. Like a, like a magician's assistant for um, for the first appearance, and then people liked her a lot, and she came back. And then, as time went on, she became like people really began to warm to her. Like like she was this um, like expanding role, and like as we said in uh, Batman animated series, some of the best episodes uh, of that focus on Harley. The, ultimately, that led 
over time to the character developing a life removed from this toxic-ass scumbag. Well, like I said, in contemporary comics and media, including the Harley Quinn show, which we really like, and we stopped watching for a while just so that we could focus on Batman the Animated Series because it was kind of, it was so contrasting. It was getting difficult to separate them out. We, we, we were like, right, well, we'll finish doing this and then we'll watch it and then we can talk about it. And then it became, now we're about to review Birds of Prey and I don't want this to get too much in there because obviously I wanted there to be a sequel to this. I wanted Ivy to get involved. Margot Robbie was initially offered a, not origin story, because we'd already got the origin in Suicide Squad, but definitely a solo story, making it all about Harley. But she wanted this to be an ensemble piece, like Guardians of the Galaxy, that introduced these characters, especially the more obscure ones, to the cinema-going public. But that worked out best in the end, because... To illustrate how different Harley is from Joker, Harley needs to be surrounded by people. If anything, Joker needs to be more alone. Because he's horrible to to everyone, as you said, like Harley is codependent, but she is at her best when she has other people to bounce off, where she has other people to kind of antagonize, kind of much like Deadpool. If you put Deadpool on his own, just mooching around in a room, he'd talk to us out of sheer boredom. But yet she needs to interact with them on a level playing field, even if the spotlight is on her. That's uh, the way they handled the Harley in this, rather than it being like a starring feature, she, Margot Robbie is generous with the other actresses. They do all get their moments. And with Birds of Prey, we see how Harley is surrounded by very different women with a few things in common. And all of them were, or begin, under the impression that they would be better off doing this alone. And all of them eventually reach the realization that together they are stronger than the sum of their lonely struggles. That doesn't mean they necessarily have to hang out and be gal pals and go to a treehouse all on the weekends. It's not turning into steel magnolias up in here. It's a story about falling apart and pulling yourself back together with the help of other people who make you want to be better. Well, the the, the overall theme for me and the, the way that they all have their own part to play in this is about how you get from the past that you're trapped in that's got you to the point you're at. How do you move forward from that to get into a, a future that you've got ahead of you that at the moment you're finding it difficult to get a, a toehold in? And uh, Helena represents that past, that heavy memory of regret and trauma and, and horror that's holding you down. Cassie is the hope and potential for the future and in order to move from one to the other what Harley needs from the other two is Renee's ability to take evidence and information and process it and apply logic to it and sort through it all so that it makes some kind of sense and then Dinah is the voice is the one who can observe these things going on and when it is prudent choose not to speak but when the moment comes that these memories and traumas need to be discussed and brought out into the open she does so i, I think it's it's quite significant for Dinah's character that she is the first person that harley admits that she and the joker have broken up to mm. she gets that moment with her and that's that's kind of how they all feed into this journey for harley for me and what she learns in this she learns from them
School of Movies is kept alive by Patreon and you folks supporting us on there every single month. Thank you so, so much. Now a little shout out to our sponsors at the $15 level. A special thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lupsch, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And this show recording actually ran up to 2 hours and 20 minutes. So 40 minutes of that got left on the cutting room floor for pacing. But you can catch those emancipated scenes to download on our Patreon this weekend at the $5 level. Here's a clip. The costume and makeup and hair people were not allowed to take continuity photos of us. <laughs> so if you look different so scene to scene, we're just so, gonna have to leave it. So so I mean honestly, like there were times where I was in the chair and I was like kinda sneakily pull up my phone and go, This is what you did yesterday and they're like, Oh my god, thank you so much for that. <laughs> I don't know what you're to, but I don't have any continuity photos of you. So I, this is what I have to work with. That should about do it for Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, at least for the time being. Harley, of course, will be back much sooner in The Suicide Squad. Before we go, where can people find your best recent stuff? Let's start with Jerome. Yep, uh, you can find me over at Game Burst. We do a weekly uh, new show every Sunday. Um, but uh, we'll be taking a quick break for the summer, but we'll be back as regular. Victoria. Can I plug something that a friend of mine did? Please, yes. Okay, so um, a couple of friends of mine are actually the art uh, part of the art team of a very small video game uh, production, and their game Second Star just came out on Kickstarter, and there's a demo available on Steam. If you have any interest in a single-player science fiction role-playing game wherein they actually consulted with real chemists and physicists to make sure that the science fiction was plausible, then maybe check it out. Nice. Uh, it's it's on Kickstarter, like I said. Um, it just started last week, so it still has several weeks to it. Um, the demo is up on Steam Second Star. Uh, check it out, see if it's something you'd be into, and give it a back. Honestly, it's they they put a lot of work into it. And I'm really I think it's really great what they've done. Well, uh, if nothing else, just consulting uh, physicists and uh, uh, chemists and doctors and like that's like the more of that goes on, the better because it means our entertainment will be smarter rather than just uh, screenwriters yeah. who go, oh, I don't know, blah, maybe that maybe that's true, and people just taking that as face value true. So, yeah, uh, exactly. nice. 
Uh, and of course, you can follow me on Twitter at VixenWitch, V-I-X-E-N-V-V-I-T-C-H. And Maya. So speaking of the Suicide Squad, I'm in it! Hooray! <laughs> I was wondering when you were uh, going to say. Yeah, so uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I did uh, uh, play a, a bit of a part in the, uh, the upcoming Suicide Squad movie directed by James Gunn. If you actually search for one of the recent clips that they've released that features Nathan Fillion as TDK or the detachable kid, I'm actually in that clip because uh, I was uh, featured in base in that scene that where he's basically uh, uh, and it's not spoilers at this point because anybody can look it up. The detachable kid's power is his arms detach from his body. That's it. it's it's the dumbest thing ever and it was really it it was super fun to to shoot that that scene so i'm really glad that they kept that but uh if you if you look them up on youtube or or twitter wherever whatever social media you pick um you will be able to see that and i'm actually in that scene so what are you where should we look for that there's a lineup of soldiers that he's like his arms are literally like flying towards us very very slowly and like slapping us in the face and that's the whole gag is like that is the extent of his powers <laughs> like he is we're the watching this clip now by the way he's just got to the face person. slapping so i'm actually the the one uh, they were <coughs> called the the soldados the the um soldiers so i'm the one that's like in the very middle of that group of people nice. and you can hear me actually kind of like yelp in surprise when we nice, they me. used your yelps yes they did excellent fantastico mm-hmm. This is the detachable kid. He's got my back. He could slap you upside the head just like spanking a baby's ass. I'd advise not getting slapped by him. He really smarts. Okay. Yeah, I can also I can also uh, confirm that Nathan Fillion is absolutely wonderful and was just a joy to work with. He was a, a super good sport about coming up to us and just like smacking us all in the face a bunch of times i was thinking they were just going to use foam arms but i'm assuming it really was his his arms it was it was a combination of him doing it and then us like pantomiming it with him standing way way off in the distance like they did a number of different takes and then basically just composited all the different um all the different ones together (laughs) to come up with the final shots and yeah we checked he's a genuine dc villain on that bombshell that is it for us. We will see you next week. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's Sorry. out. I buy my own things. I pay my own bills. These diamond rings. My automobiles. Everything I got about it. Boys can't buy my love. Buy my love. Yeah. I do what I want. Yes. Say what you say. Hey. I work real hard.
ce qui se 